Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533-42 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text hope NY in New York. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. And now for something completely different. Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Get Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and boy, oh boy, did I pick a year to start a podcast like this with a name like Get Cocky. But uh, anyway, y'all should still rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with your friends if you haven't already. And for those of you that have and have already subscribed to the podcast, then thank you. You make this possible, and we really couldn't or wouldn't be able to do this without you. So thank you so much. Coming up in just a little bit, we have Will Helms with his usual Monday segment to see what the numbers tell us about Carolina's horrendous performance on Saturday. I have a feeling there are still going to be some real individual standout performances, which in some ways will probably make it harder to digest what went wrong on Saturday. I want to start, though, with some troubling trends. And this isn't new for people that have been out on Will Muschamp. And even if you're in on Will Muschamp, these are kind of trends that have continued to crop up over and over again. And I think now have really sort of come to a head. I had somebody call into my local show on 107.5 The Game today and say, are Carolina fans and is the Carolina football program at a similar crossroads to Clemson 
back when they thought they wanted to fire Dabo, obviously before he went on to win a couple national championships and appear in another one and turn into one of two preeminent superpowers in college football. And my honest answer to him at that point was, I'm not sure. That is sort of my, that's sort of my default way of thinking. When Will Muschamp was hired, I know a lot of people didn't like the hire, and that's fine. You don't have to like it, and you're allowed to, to dislike it, to disagree. And after a couple of years, especially after that 9-4 and four season and his second season, there wasn't much of an argument that was, okay, well, look how much he has energized this program. You look at what he's doing in terms of recruiting. He is reinvigorating what has, for the last couple of years, been a pretty talent-poor by Power 5 standards and certainly by SEC standards, school. So he is turning all of those things around. He's done it in two short years. And then there was a little bit of a regression in year three. And now here we are. And it's sort of on the cusp of, well, it's not on the cusp, but the, the wheels have officially come off of this thing. South Carolina has three more definite losses on the schedule. They have one more game where they're going to be a heavy underdog, but it's not unwinnable. Right now, Texas A&M on the road, Clemson, and Georgia on the road are unwinnable games. Florida, I think, is a theoretically winnable game. I, I haven't been super impressed with them, and I, I think in some kind of, I think it's kind of funny that we have arrived at a point where two, maybe even three starting SEC quarterbacks have gotten hurt, and their backups are better. I think Sawyer Smith is maybe the exception, but I'm still reserving judgment because it's just been two starts for him. But for Carolina, Ryan Helensky is certainly better than what Jake Bentley was for most of the last two seasons and Kyle Trask has already proven at Florida that he's probably a better option to run that offense to not make mistakes and to help Florida stay in football games than Felipe Franks was but that Florida game still looms large as Carolina will probably be a double digit underdog they're probably going to lose that game I wouldn't put it in unwinnable we have those four games and then you have four games left that are going to be toss-ups that's Vanderbilt that's at Tennessee that's Appalachian State and that is Kentucky this coming Saturday 7:30 at williams Price Stadium if Carolina wins all four of those games, they're five and seven, which is right what Vegas, right at what Vegas said that South Carolina would be this year. And I think, according to most people, a disaster. I think the expectation around Columbia to start the season was seven and five feels about right. Six and six would be bad. Eight and four would be really nice. You assume losses to Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia, probably on the road to A and M. If not them, then maybe to Kentucky again, maybe at Missouri, maybe against Florida. After Carolina lost to North Carolina, people were like, well, there goes the season. And, you know, mathematically, it wasn't exactly correct. And even going into the Missouri game, a game that, while I admitted I didn't have much of a feel for, felt reasonably optimistic about at least Carolina's ability to score points, which, interestingly enough, was exactly what Carolina did horrendously on Saturday. But if Carolina had won that game and going into that game, the math still said Carolina can lose all the other games they're supposed to lose and still have a good seven and five season and still just have, you know, the, basically a five and three in the SEC, which would be good, show signs of improvement. I think have fans feeling reasonably good going into next season with a with more good talent coming in. You have Luke Doty coming in from Myrtle Beach. You have a five star running back in Marshawn Lloyd, who is at this point still committed to South Carolina. We'll obviously monitor that as the uh, as the rest of the season progresses. You add that to the talent that's already there. Ryan Helinski, who was a four-star guy, came all the way from California. And uh, I mean, until that Missouri game looked like the real deal, I would say the jury's still out on him, but it's still probably fair to be optimistic about him. You add that to, you know, Zach Pickens, who has been good early, and J.J. Anigbare, who's still young, who's a, just, as just a sophomore, had a pretty nice game on Saturday. There, the talent is there. And there's no question when you're talking about what Will Muschamp has done and what he hasn't done at South Carolina, you can't say 
that he hasn't gotten more talent into the program. I know that's a double negative. I'm sorry. He has done a good job of, of recruiting and turning Carolina around in that respect. But where he is now lost is the math says if Carolina wins all of these toss-up games, they will be 5-7, and seven, which is a disaster. And two games better than where he was when he inherited this program at, I mean, the lowest of low points. I won't say unprecedented mess because we're still, you know, this century Carolina lost 21 straight games. So it could always be worse. Carolina fans remember that. It could always be worse. But given where South Carolina was in the early 2010s as a legitimate top 10, if you want to be conservative, program in the country. Three straight 11-win seasons. If the BCS rules weren't stupid, Carolina would have been playing in BCS games regularly. They were always one game away. Couldn't get over the hump. But we don't need to relitigate you know, that time period. But I bring that up to say, Carolina was a legit top 10 program. They hit rock bottom. What was rock bottom for them then at 3-9? and nine. And the argument in favor of Will Muschamp staying and turning this thing around was, look what he's doing. You know, Give him some time. And even this season, I think most fans fell into the category of, well, it's probably not going to be fun. This will not be a great season, but you know, still give it time. Give him one more year after this because of all the talent that he's brought in, because it's a hard schedule. You give Carolina some leeway, but now it's not the hard schedule that has been the downfall or the reason that this is a disappointing season. It has been the lack of preparation of this team, this team's lack of ability to execute offensively when they get into the red zone and on the opponent's half of the field. And frankly, against Missouri, it was just the ability to move the ball. They had one first down in the first half. Their running backs had two carries in the first quarter. There are just so many head-scratching decisions that just keep pointing back to Will Muschamp, who, regardless of who his offensive coordinator is, these are the problems that crop up in big moments of big games. And I think is probably the biggest facet of his inability to just win those games in general. Carolina played well defensively on Saturday. They gave up 20 points and they were on the field for 91 plays. I think I think they can be forgiven for that. They forced a couple of turnovers. DJ Wanamon almost had a pick six. Aaron Sterling, who had a nice game, had the strip sack. And Javon Kinlaw, they recovered that in plus territory. And the offense just continued to be inept. And I say continued to be. Maybe that's not fair given a school record-setting performance three weeks ago. Two weeks ago against Alabama, a strong offensive performance, at least in terms of yardage, in terms of accumulating first downs and really seemingly moving the ball at will against Alabama. But the scoring of points always seems to be an issue, no matter who's the quarterback, who's the running back, who's the wide receiver, who's the offensive coordinator. Will Muschamp has always struggled, and whether it's not enabling his offensive coordinators enough, whether it's meddling too much in that game plan, that is the trend that keeps cropping up and keeps Will Muschamp head coach teams from getting over the hump, or, or for South Carolina, not even getting over like the hump, I guess a hump, the first hump of being, hey, this team is back to being a better than average SEC team, someone that is not as good as Georgia, but better than the rest of the SEC East. They're bottom dwellers right now. Those Tennessee and Vanderbilt games, those are not good teams, and those are toss-ups for Carolina right now. If they lose two of those games, which is not unreasonable to lose at Tennessee, and Tennessee's, Tennessee always gives fit Carolina fits in Knoxville. Doesn't matter how good either team is. So that's a game that Carolina could absolutely 100% lose. And then you have an App State team that just beat a North Carolina team that beat Carolina week one. I know there are going to be a lot, of, a lot of differences between those teams by the time you get to the end of the season. But you have that. You have Kentucky, who Carolina hadn't beaten in five years. And then you have Vanderbilt, which is probably the game that you actually feel the best about for the rest of the season. 
But two and ten, three and nine, is not unrealistic. In that, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. The talent is there, by and large. When Chris Clark posts his power rankings or his star rankings and says, here's what this roster is, here's what this roster is, I know stars aren't everything in college football, but when you are more talented on paper or at least as talented, when you can say these teams are roughly similar or Carolina has a slight edge, again, depending on how you feel about the star system, I I don't view that like super favorably, but it does mean something. The blue chip ratio is a real indicator or predictor for success in college football. And when you are in that situation and you lose by 20 points and you basically only score seven offensively, yes, the offense scored 14 points. They had a one-yard rushing touchdown from Rico Dattle after the DJ Wanham interception, which could have been a pick six, but I guess credit to Kelly Bryant for you know targeting DJ Wanham as he was going rumbling down the sideline and, of course, not getting called for it. But that's unacceptable and can only, I think, be explained by a lack of preparation and poor coaching. Inability to make adjustments. All of these things that will crop up every now and then over the last couple of years or have cropped up every now and then over the last couple of years and make you say, well, wait a second, you know, is Will Muschamp still the guy? And I have always, even after the North Carolina game, I said, you know, maybe, you know, I, I, I think I overreacted a little bit to the North Carolina game and said, that's probably the end of the season. And if Carolina continued to play like they did against North Carolina, that would have been the case. And then we kind of saw that again on Saturday. They basically played like they did against North Carolina. There wasn't a lot of energy. There wasn't a lot of life. The team got down and didn't really show a lot of fight. And you can criticize the players for that, and I understand that. And the players have to go out there and make the plays. But it doesn't seem like these guys are being put in position to succeed. And as much as fans were willing to give, I think by and large, give Will Muschamp and and company a, a pass this season because of how hard the schedule is, they're not giving him a pass for losing to North Carolina in the opener and laying an egg like they did. They're not giving him a pass for losing on the road against Missouri in the fashion that they did. Again, I said this on my local show, but this comes down to performance as much as it does results. In in some ways, it even I've I've seen a couple people say this, and I, I hate to I hate to imply this because I don't know what's going on in the locker room, but just the lack of energy, the lack of life, the lack of fight from this team. I mean, it really looks like they either don't believe in each other, don't believe in their coaching staff, don't believe in what they're doing. There doesn't seem to be the, the life and the energy, even just a week removed from having that against Alabama. When this team gets down. There's not a lot of fight, and I think the lack of consistency, the lack of preparedness, all comes back to the coaching staff. So maybe I'm late to the party. I know a lot of people have been on a must-champ for a while now for whatever reason. They have seen this. I was willing to continue giving him chances to, to get better and to improve at this part of coaching, but at this point, I feel like you're just beating your head against the wall. He's great at bringing in talent. Once they get there, I think he does a reasonably good job of developing them. I think Carolina has good players on both sides of the ball. Javon Kinlaw has developed into one of the best interior defensive linemen in the entire country, but especially offensively. It's just uh, it's just not good enough, and it hasn't been. And at this point, there's no reason to believe that it will get better. Rico Dowdle's been running like a man possessed. Brian Edwards is really having an, an, a really nice senior season. Shai Smith is fine. Again, the, the biggest, I guess, X factor here, the biggest caveat is the real, potentially, hopefully, probably aberrant Ryan Holinsky performance where like maybe it was his first road start, maybe it was his elbow, likely a combination of both of those things, but just looked terrible and didn't give Carolina a lot of options. But when that's the case, 
you go back to what's worked for Carolina this year, even against Alabama, is you run the football. I know that Missouri was trying to take it away, but Wyoming ran for 300 yards on Missouri. You don't think after they hit the 200-yard mark, Missouri said, okay, we're going to try and stop the run. Wyoming went and got another 100 yards, and it wasn't just because of altitude. The game planning, the game, the, the play design is unimaginative. It's too many RPOs for Carolina. This happened last year. Almost at this exact point in the season last year, Will Muschamp said, yeah, it's too many RPOs. We need to we need to call more straight-up running plays. If that was a problem last year, fix that going into the season. Don't wait until you're 1-3 and three to make those kinds of adjustments. Those are the things that need to happen, again, last season when you first recognized that it was a problem with the same offensive coordinator. The, just the, the unwillingness to make those changes, I think, is it has, has really been sort of... I don't want to say the final straw. I'm not going to say fire Will Muschamp because that's not my job. And then you have to decide who you go get that's better. And then you have to deal with an 18 or $20 million buyout or whatever the case is. But I have reached the point, I think, where I do not, I, I'm not going to defend him anymore. I've, I've been in his corner. I've stand Will Muschamp and said, no, 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 it's going to be fine. Give it time. He's going to get the right talent in here. And I really believed that even until, even until this past Saturday, un, until the Missouri game. But this is just the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of uninspiring performances when it's when when Carolina really needed to have inspired performances or energetic performances or something resembling life it's just been too many eggs laid under Will Muschamp Carolina is now 3 and 7 in their last 10 games against FPS opponents including oh of their last 6 i saw that courtesy of uh, Colin Taylor on Gamecock Central this morning at, at some point at some point, it's about results. And in terms of individual performances, we're about to talk to Will Helms, who I think, I don't know, I haven't looked yet. I save uh, I save my surprise for, for this segment that we're going to get to here in just a second. I think Carolina will still have had some really good individual performances. I think they have good players on both sides of the ball, which is just even more damning for the coaching staff when you have guys putting in good individual performances and guys that are good individual players, guys that are going to be playing in the NFL. J.C. Horn. Javon Kinlaw, Brian Edwards, maybe Shai Smith, maybe Donnell Stanley. Like, they have some guys. And just not working out. But let's dig into the numbers. Here's Will Helms. All right, with me on the line now for his usual Monday segment is Will Helms. Will Helms, the stat master, a man of probably many other nicknames, but I'm going to roll with that one until he uh, tells me otherwise. How's it going, Will? Good, how are you? Doing all right. Um, so you got all the numbers, and I know of at least one number from this weekend that will be favorable for South Carolina, and that will be Javon Kinlaw, who just week in, week out, turns in outstanding performances, has really turned himself into one of the best interior defensive linemen in the country. Um, but was it the case that the individual numbers reflected in the pro football focus ratings were as bad as the collective team performance on Saturday? Um, in certain cases, yes. The defense um, actually has some pretty good numbers here. You started with, you know, Kinlaw. Kinlaw's numbers um, are just off the charts good from uh, Saturday. And, you know, he's done that several times before. Um, but offensively, the, the stats and the, the numbers are not very good. Um, you've got a couple offensive linemen that run blocked well and didn't pass block well. And you've got a couple offensive linemen that pass blocked well and didn't run block well. And then you've got Nick Muse, who had a good good grade, and that's basically it. So when you're watching the game, or when I was watching the game, you look at the stats afterwards, and it, it doesn't totally seem to reflect how well 
I think Missouri got after the passer. Three of their four sacks came after the score was 34-14. to 14. So it was a situation where they're just going to pin their ears back, come after the quarterback. It's an obvious passing situation, and Carolina's got to make up a, a lot of, I mean, a lot of ground. How much of the bad pass blocking ratings for those offensive linemen were a direct result of those sacks, or was it just kind of poor play throughout the game? So the offensive linemen weren't terrible in pass blocking. Um, actually, so the, um, Missouri was credited with 13 pressures, but seven of those, um, it, PFF can a- apply certain uh, metrics to the offensive linemen as well as the defensive linemen. Um, so there are 13 pressures, and you know it'll tell you which Missouri players had those pressures, but it'll also tell you which offensive linemen um, gave up the pressure. And what was interesting about this one was the fact that of the 13 pressures, only seven came against offensive linemen. Um, actually, now that I've checked that, it's six came against offensive linemen. Um, everything else, um, you had Holinsky was credited with three pressures, which is just, you know, he didn't throw the ball away quick enough or, you know, created pressure by running into pressure or something like that. Joyner created two, and then Kyle Markway gave up uh, two pressures as well. Um, so against the offensive linemen, they were only credited with one sack and five hurries, which when you throw it 39 times, it's not really that bad. And really telling that two of the quarterbacks, I, I didn't realize that Pro Football Focus even made that distinction, so that's really telling. There was one that immediately jumps out. I think it was the first sack of the game where Joyner got sacked that it seemed like an obvious case of either him not making the right decision or not making the decision um, quickly enough. But that's interesting that Helensky had three of those as well. And, and I guess the conspicuous absence there in terms of pass protection or pass pressures allowed is from the running backs who didn't run the ball well, but I imagine if they didn't give up any pressures that at least their pass blocking grade was pretty good. So this year their pass blocking grade has been really, really well. I'm looking at Rico Dowdle right now, who in the past has not been good in that regard. Um, and this year he's been really good. He's actually grading in the high 70s on pass blocking, um, which, you know, I guess this far into the season we can go ahead and say that that's um, indicative of him, you know, playing well um, over one one or two games. You know, having a good pass blocking rating as a running back really is, you know, can kind of be misleading. But he's got a 76.7 grade this year. Um, and the past uh, three years, He's had one in the 40s, one in the 30s, and then one in the mid-60s. Um, so this year, you know, his pass blocking is a lot better, and I would say some of that has to do with scheme. Um, some of that has to do with getting the ball out a little bit quicker, not putting him in so many one-on-one situations. Um, but all the running backs really um, play well. I'm looking at the top three pass blocking grades from um, Saturday, and Rico Dowdle was number one, and then Dylan Wanham and Tavian Feaster were uh, tied for second. So, um you know, overall, not terrible. Um, you know, there were some pressures that were allowed. Um, got, you know, three guys. The left guard position wasn't very good. Um, just Saturday, I mean, Jordan Rhodes has been playing really well. He played all but two snaps. He gave up three pressures, and Eric Douglas came in for two snaps and gave up a sack, and um, really the only sack that the offensive line gave up, um, according to this, um, was in one of Eric Douglas's that two plays. So, obviously, he did not grade well in pass blocking. In terms of the running backs, obviously, the team rushing numbers for Carolina are really bad. It was, I think, seven-tenths of a yard per carry on average. That was obviously taking into consideration those four sacks. Um, Rico carried only eight times. Tavian, it was either six or seven. And both of those guys average about two yards a carry. But uh, did the numbers bear out that 
they were just not running the ball well, or was it a matter of Carolina not going to them enough, which is sort of my assumption watching the game? So it, it's hard to grade out well if you're only going to run the ball six times. Um, they definitely did not have their best game. Um, Rico's um, offensive grade was 50.4. Um, his running grade was um, just a 50.6. He was docked for the fumble. Um, but, you know, um, the grades there weren't great. But, again, it, it's hard to grade really well unless you take one of those, like, six carries or you know, eight carries for, you know, 20, 30 yards. You, you're not going to grade out that well. What about the wide receivers? Obviously, Ryan Helensky and DeCarion Joyner both struggled in actually passing the ball. Um, I think it was 13 of 30 for Helensky, and I can't remember uh, what Joyner's completion percentage was. But obviously, they struggled getting into the wide receivers. Were there any standout performances there other than Brian for obviously taking the screen house? So what I found really interesting is uh, Edwards was targeted 15 times for six receptions, which there, you know, most of the time, if that's the case, if you're only, you know, have a 40% receiving uh, percentage, um, you're not going to grade out very well. And he wasn't, you know, excellent. Definitely the the screen helped a lot, Um, but he did not grade out poorly. Um, The tight ends graded out really well. Um, But beyond that, um, you know, the third best receiving grade, or fourth best receiving grade, and this will tell you, you know, I guess how bad it was, was Ryan Holinsky because he caught a pass. Um, you know, he wow. docked for the fumble, but he does get a receiving grade because he caught a pass. And he was, uh, you know, at the the very average 60 mark. Um, and all the other receivers other than Brian Edwards and um, Nick Muse and uh, Mark Way as tight ends graded below that 60 mark. Just as an aside, since you mentioned – that technically registering as a catch for Holinsky, which I, I guess I guess it was. That's how it was ruled on the field. Don't you think if that happened with a wide receiver, if that pass had gone forward and Brian Edwards did that exact same thing and just threw it on the ground, don't you think they would have called that incomplete? Oh, 100%. It's, it's one of those weird things in football where the catch-non-catch to me is just so weird in the sense of we'll, we'll look at sideline side catches or something and we'll say, oh, he has possession as soon as it touches his hands. But if you're, if he's in the middle of the field, it's not possession until he completes a football move. Um, it, there's just so many inconsistencies in that rule. And um, I thought the same thing that um, had that been just a regular pass to a wide receiver, it definitely would have been incomplete. Yeah. I've given up just trying to figure it out. It's infuriating. And there was even the play where I think it was Kyle Markway that caught a ball, maybe on third down right around the sticks and had it for, you know, several steps and rolled around on the ground out of bounds. But then the ball came out and Barry Odom decided to challenge that. And I just, I don't know why anyone would ever think that's a good idea, but it's so ambiguous. What is it catch and what isn't? I, I figured it was uh, worth getting your take on that. Um, is Was Ryan Holinsky's grade, according to Pro Football Focus, the worst you've seen from a Carolina quarterback in a while? Um, so let me look. It's very similar to Jake Bentley's grade against North Carolina. Um, so if I'm looking here, so he graded out a 44.3. Um, he was docked for the fumble. Um and he was, you know, overall had a 40.7 pass grade, which is not very good. Um, but if I look back here, let me look this, you know, I don't want to, you know, rag on Jake Bentley. It's right around what Jake Bentley's was um, week one against North Carolina. So, um, you know, definitely not his best performance. You know, we can chalk that up to, you know, injury, no injury. I don't, I don't know. I don't think a lot of people do, um, you know, but also you have to think it, it's, Helensky's first road start, um, Missouri was definitely passing, uh, loading the box and forcing them to pass it a little bit. Um, people say in, in the RPO, there is, 
you know, you can influence the RPO a little bit. Um, but, you know, with the RPO, if you're throwing accurate balls, you know, it's not going to work to say, oh, let's just force him to throw. And, you know, Hulinski definitely had some throws, especially across the middle, that had he completed them early, it would have left more room for the running game later in the game. Um, but, you know, not a great performance, obviously, by any means. Um, but I also wouldn't think it's too much um, of a concern as long as this is not a lingering, you know, season-long injury to Holinsky. Right, and you, you kind of assume it's a combination of things, the elbow, like you mentioned, and it being his first road start. You know, maybe some other extenuating circumstances like South Carolina not really running the ball. I mean, running backs had two carries in the first quarter, and I think it was seven or eight total in the first half. So the offensive staff didn't even really seem to be trying to help him. Rather, they were asking him to to uh, to sort of throw out of it. But I think perception is a funny part of this because if he had gone 13 for 30 with a touchdown and a pick against Alabama and then gone 26 of 32, or basically if you reverse their stat lines, I think people would be a lot more optimistic with him uh, or about him. And I guess part of that is, is recency bias as well. But it was it was so unusual given how strong his first two performances were for him to come out and to you know, have this kind of game. But like you said, I think there are several factors, be it the elbow, the offense, um, and, all, and also the road start as well. But I don't think – I didn't watch that game and see anything that I thought was like a long-term question mark or problem. It was just missing throws that he had made in his first two games, and I fully expect him to rebound against Kentucky. Yeah, I don't really wouldn't think it's that much um, of a concern. I mean, it's a concern in the sense of, you know, now you're one in three – um, you know, you lost one of your winnable games. I didn't have them beating um, Missouri at the beginning of the season um, when I, you know, put out my um, predictions game by game. But um, that's still one of those winnable games. And really, you know, South Carolina is basically 0-2 in those kind of toss-up games this year. Um, and so, you know, if there's any concern, it's that going forward. Um, but, you know, I would not be surprised at all to see him come back and throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns against Kentucky this weekend. We started off talking about Javon Kinlaw, and you said that there were several good defensive grades, which makes sense. They were on the field for 91 plays and only allowed 20 points. Obviously, Missouri scoring two defensive touchdowns. Were there any other standouts on that side of the ball that had a similarly outstanding grade to Kinlaw? So they had uh, 14 pressures as a team, and 11 of those came from Aaron Sterling and Javon Kinlaw, um, which I think we've just grown accustomed to Javon Kinlaw doing that. Um, that was his 15th straight game with at least one quarterback pressure. And of those 15, I think 13 of them were multi-pressure games. Um, so, you know, he's been doing this. He's um, third in the country in total pressures among defensive interior linemen. Um, and the, the two or three guys ahead of him have at least 25 more uh, pass rushing snaps than he does. Just, uh, um, you know, not that he's been – on the bench for long, but, you know, he, he played basically one quarter against uh, Charleston Southern. A lot of other teams have been running the ball a lot. Um, you know, he's got 15 pressures on the season through four games, which is just unreal for a um, defensive tackle to be doing that. Um, but, yes, Sterling um, had a great game as well, had two sacks, three, uh, three hurries, and a batted pass, um, which, you know, obviously is, you know, goes well for a good game. Um, Rick Sandich had a good game, and um, I think something that's very interesting is uh, number four on this list is Jamias Williams, um, who, of course, you know, took so much heat um, last week and then didn't get the start, didn't play a ton of snaps, played 36 snaps, um, but graded out really well, actually had the best tackling grade on the team. That's something that I remember 
being impressed with his freshman year. I thought he was a good tackler given that he was undersized for his position, and it seemed like he had struggled to find that uh, again a little bit early in the season and and last year, and he dealt with some injury here and there as well. Um, But good to hear that he's sort of bounced back. Uh, One other area that was criticized a lot, I think specifically by Will Muschamp, even more so than the fans, on his Sunday teleconference, he said that it was a lot of inconsistent play from the linebackers. The eye test Saturday, I thought T.J. Brunson had a a really solid game. I thought Ernest Jones continued to play well, and I even uh, saw Sherrod Green make a couple more plays in space, and he's done that a couple times this year. He seems to have made a lot of improvements because last year it was... A struggle for him at times. You can say that you know that was some due to a really high snap count, some due to probably being thrust into too much of a, a situation that he wasn't quite ready for. Uh, did the linebackers grade out poorly, or is Will Muschamp criticizing something more specific to Carolina? So the linebackers, yes and no. Um, Sherrod Green played really well. Um, his his run defense grade was was good. Um, he rushed the, rushed the pass for a few times. Not very much success there. Same with T.J. Brunson. Um, really, the, the pass rush grades weren't good outside of Aaron Sterling and Javon Kimmel, um, just all along the team. But um, Sherrod Green played the run really well, which is a you know a big part of this game that he's improved this year. Is um, he's been grading in the 50s consistently for two years, um, and he's this is his fourth straight game with a 70-plus run defense grade. Um, Brunson didn't play well. He had one of his, I don't want to say stereotypical TJ Brunson games. If you look at the stats at the end and go, wow, he had 14 tackles. That's amazing. Um, and then you look back and he doesn't grade out well against the run. Um, you know, that that's here or there. That's, um, to me, it's very hard. I test to kind of tell that whether he's, you know, um, Will Muschamp talks all the time about run fits. Um, he didn't grade out very well against the run, but his tackling grade was good. His coverage grade was um, very good. Um, and then Ernest Jones did not have a very good game. Um, had his worst of the season grade wise, but still he was great. He graded out as the third worst player on the team, but still graded around average. Um, so that just shows you how well the defense really did play Saturday, that he graded 17th out of 19 guys and ended up with about a 58 grade, which is, you know, right around that 60 average mark. One guy that I'm curious about on the other side of the sideline, or on the other side of the field, I guess, uh, Kelly Bryant. His passer rating was significantly higher than Ryan Helensky's, and I, I guess it's I guess he played better, but he didn't impress me at all. Obviously, I'm sure he had a high uh, rushing grade because he ran the ball very well. I think he had 75 of Missouri's 200 yards in the first half on his legs, but he seemed to miss a lot of passes. How did he grade out according to Pro Football Focus? Um, his passing grade was not much better than Ryan Holinsky's. Um It was a, a 48.5. He didn't complete a lot of passes down the field. Um, I'm trying to look here for his um, – see if I can find his um, yards before and after the catch. Um, but he did not really grade out that well. He had two, um, you know, two deep throws that were good uh, – you know, really good catches by the receiver. Um, but beyond that um, – Really, anything further than um, you know, ten yards down the field was you know not that good for him. Um, so he didn't grade out very well. He ended up with a 58.4, um, 48.5 passing grade. Um, did have a running grade in the 60s, um, high 60s. But you know, he really did not grade out as well as he had the past two games uh, before that, especially that West Virginia game. Now that makes sense. Kind of reinforces what we saw, which I think makes it even. You know, harder for Gamecock fans to uh, to to swallow that pill that it was 
not only a loss, but a pretty pretty lopsided loss. Were there any other numbers that stood out on either side of the ball that you wanted to get to before I let you go? I mean, I'm just probably every week I think we talk about Javon Kinlaw and how good he is. Um, I think we're seeing less and less um, of people saying, oh, is he really that good? He, he, a bunch of um, outlets came out with a first-round grade on him at the beginning of the year, and people were like, oh, is he really, you know, has he really been that good? But he right now is on pace to – um, have a better grade than either of Clemson's um, really good defensive tackles last season. Um, and we're only four games in. And, you know, the way the grades work is if he continues at this pace, his grade is just going to go higher and higher and higher. He's at a 89.7 um, defense grade right now, which is top five in the country for any position um, among players that qualify. Um, so, I mean, he is, I'm always going to come back to him being, you know, way better than I think people give him credit for. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's the one. He's four straight games of the sack to start the season. Um, so, if you haven't seen Javon Kinlaw, you don't watch um, the line of scrimmage. Watch the line of scrimmage because that guy's really good. See the highest graded Carolina player? Uh, I guess other than like someone like Kevin Harris who's just had such limited action. Yeah, among um, among players that qualify, he's way way ahead of anything. He's, I think, if I can get it to load here, I can tell you exactly where in the uh, SEC he fits. But he's really really high. Oh, while you're getting that to load, I'll, I'll ask you this one just to doubly put you on the spot: Is Joseph Charlton in the top three for individual Gamecocks in terms of just within the team who grades out the best this season? Because he's had yet another excellent season, and I think I saw his unpaced to break his own punting record for Carolina. So PFF is really late in the week with their um, special teams grades. Through three weeks, he was. Um, through three weeks, he was graded out as the number three um, punter in the country. Um, I'll wait. They're about halfway through the grades this week for um, punting. But, um, yeah, he's, um, you know, he's way up there. And while I've got it, uh, Javon Kinlaw is among players with at least 100 snaps, fourth in the SEC, regardless of position, among defensive players. Oh, wow. So. Who are the other three, just out of curiosity? Um, so you've got Jabari Zunaga, the guy from uh, Florida. Um, that, you know, I guess his he was the one that had like six or seven pressures. Um, game one against Miami. Hasn't done much since. Um, on the other side, Jonathan Greenard from uh, Florida. So you got both edge rushers there. And then Missouri's Jordan Elliott is the third guy. Defensive tackle who's... Uh, been playing really well. He's graded out really well, better against the run than Kinlaw has. But as far as pass rush grade, Kinlaw is number one among um, defensive tackles in the country right now. So There you go. Well, thank you so much. Great stuff as always. Read him on Gamecock Central. Give him a follow on Twitter at WHelms21. Uh, also check out his website, his company, actually. You own this company. It's Prep RA, and you were out of town on a trip with Prep RA this weekend. Yeah, so I uh, was working with a guy. Um, what I do is I do tutoring, test prep, um, recruiting help for high school athletes in North and South Carolina. Um, so a kid I've been working with for a while on SAT and recruiting um, is a Marist commit. His name is J.W. Hertzberg. Um, goes to South, uh, Southside Christian in Greenville. Was going up on his official visit up to Marist this weekend. Um, and his family asked if I'd go with him. So I was up there this weekend seeing some friends in the, in the Northeast and also checking out some FCS football, um, which – I always think is there's very good football, even if it's not at the highest division one level. So um, got to see that, got to connect with some more coaches up that way. Um, you know, 
something I enjoy, something I get to do. If you want more information, check out prep-ra.com. That's the best way to get information. And again, follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. That's really, really cool that you do that because so many people focus on just the football part of it. But like you said, it's test prep and a lot of other things that aren't as sexy to talk about but are really important that go on behind the scenes in terms of uh, making a college athlete. So I think it's really cool uh, that you do that. Prep-ra.com. Will, great stuff as always. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Thanks again to Will. Great stuff from him as always. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter at WHelms21 and be sure to check out his website prepra.com. That's prep-ra.com. Before we get out of here, best of social media from the weekend and as seems to be the case, whenever Carolina loses, it always ends up being a great weekend of social media. So we'll uh, get this thing kicked off with a familiar face. Derek Phillips said this was Saturday night right after the game. Anyone got an address for Helensky's parents? I'll be the first to write them an apology letter Enter the portal before it's too late. Thank you, Derek. Also writing an apology letter to the Holinsky family ended up being kind of a prescient headline after the state's gaffe over the weekend, which we don't need to talk about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go on to the Internet. Uh, here's one, a little bit of optimism, kind of, from the popular Will Muschamp meme where he just says different words that have some part of the opposing team in it. And then says Cox by 90. Y'all have probably seen that on Twitter. If you haven't, it's really funny. Or you can go check out. This is uh, Carolina Cam. That's at Cam U Dig It 90. Um, tweeted this out, but instead of the familiar refrain, it was Wildcats, Wild Hogs, Wild Wild West, Wild Wing Cafe. Doesn't matter to me. Cox by one. Dot, dot, dot. Maybe? It's actually punctuated with a period. I put a question mark in there for dramatic effect, but that was pretty funny. I like that meme also, so I'm just kind of a sucker for that. And I guess good news for Carolina fans. Carolina has opened as a two and a half point favorite against Kentucky. So Cox, so I won, maybe not as optimistic as I thought. Um, also, this is another one that um, my friend Joe, my roommate, tells me these and I, for, I don't know where he gets them and I need to follow up so I can give people proper credit. But somebody apparently on one of the message boards on Saturday said that it only took Will Muschamp two weeks to turn Ryan Holinsky into Jake Bentley, which is uh, pretty excellent. So thank you so much, whoever did that. Wish I could give you credit. I'll be sure to ask Joe who said that next time. Uh, Lauren Beasley from Last Word on College Football making a double joke, which I'm a big sucker for, after Carolina was playing pretty pitifully in the first half and also being on the SEC alternate, which if you watch it on real TV, was in like 360p. I mean, it was like an embarrassment how low the quality was. But Lauren tweeted out, do we have an alternate team because we're on an alternate channel or something? Uh, that's another good one. Uh, got another meme here. This is from Darren Fry at Fry Darren. It's the SpongeBob meme of him getting up and slowly and depressedly walking out of the chair. It says, watching all my hopes and patience as a Gamecock diminish into a sobering, inconsistent season of disappointment and shame. Ite, I'm going to head out. Um, we, got, we actually had a bunch this weekend. A couple from the world of professional football, the Eric Andre meme where he shoots Hannibal Burris and then basically looks around inquiring what happened to him. But in this case, it was Antonio Brown shooting Antonio Brown's career and then inquiring... How could the NFL do this to me? That was a great one. Uh, another one, Rutgers apparently is using alcohol sales to fund a coach buyout. And so Cameron Vinson on Twitter, at Cameron underscore Vinson, did the, little, did the math for us. Muschamp's buyout is $22 million, five more home games, about 400,000 people, which, I mean, that's, that's a sellout, which I think it's safe to assume is not. But at that math, cost of a beer Williams Bryce in this hypothetical $5 number of beers to buy out Will Muschamp's contract 11 beers per person let's get this started I will always support math 
And the best tweet of the weekend also comes from the world of professional football. Matt Harmon tweeted this out. For those of you that remember, there was a Play 60 commercial several years ago where a little kid, he's probably six. Hey, Cam, thanks a lot for coming to my school today. No problem, Nate. I promise to exercise and eat right. Don't forget 60 minutes of play a day, right? And I'll grow up to be big and strong like you. Absolutely. And play in the NFL. Yes, sir. And be drafted number one. Maybe. And become the starting quarterback of the Panthers. Okay. You can be my backup. Excuse me? And make Panthers fans forget about you. What? And become your mom's favorite player. Whoa. I'm just loosening my arm. And Matt Harmon, after Kyle Allen's excellent performance, Four touchdown passes, no interceptions as the Panthers routed the Cardinals to get their first win of the season. Tweets a picture, a screenshot from that commercial, says, can't believe this kid grew up to be Kyle Allen. Wow. Uh, Congratulations, Matt. You won social media this weekend. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Get Cocky Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends if you like it and you want to hear more. We'll be back on Friday with a look ahead to the Kentucky game. A night game for South Carolina. Hey, that's at 7.30. You get an opportunity to go to Williams Price at night, which is always fun. And Carolina is a favorite in this game, which who the heck knows what that means. But I think some Carolina fans will be satisfied if the Gamecocks finally end that losing streak to the Wildcats after five years of losing to them, which is depressing for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. We'll have more on that Friday. Until then, y'all have a good week. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads Money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in 
West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.